You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. welcome you all to Kootenai Community Church Adult Sunday School. And for those of you that have been following teachings between Cornell and I, I am in the book of Philippians. Cornell is in 2 Corinthians. We are now beginning chapter 4, and we'll be looking at the first three verses, which is Paul giving some true encouragement to all those in the body of Christ. Before we begin, I'd like to open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time to gather collectively with your people. And Father, we just ask this morning that you would guide us into your truth. And I pray, Father, that you would illuminate these truths in our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit and that you would be glorified as we teach, as we lift up our song and praise to you, and as Jim preaches. We just pray that you would be glorified and that the body of Christ would be edified. We just give you thanks now, and we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, Paul, in this final chapter... There is much to be gleaned, and let's just look at the first three verses. I'm reading out of the New American Standard. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Eodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also, to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Well, at the beginning of this, Paul once again is exhorting these believers whom he loves deeply. And as we look at the opening verse in chapter 4, we think, I think also of a passage in Thessalonians in which Paul wants them to stand firm in the Lord. He is concerned always about the stability of the churches that he was over. And to the Thessalonians, which most consider as exemplary church, he says this. Now, we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Now, he penned that in 1 Thessalonians 3.8. And then in his second letter to Thessalonians, he says this, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or of mouth or by letter from us. That's in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. We know the apostle was giving critical admonitions 
as there were so many false teachers who were constantly trying to ensnare believers with their false teaching. In the Apostle Peter's first epistle to the believers who were scattered, he gives this admonition. I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And then once again in 2 Peter 2.14, he warned the believers of false teachers who were enticing unstable souls in 2 Peter 2.14. So Paul begins our text this morning with, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. As we look at this, Paul once again shows his deep love and affection for these Philippian believers. These believers to him were so close and so loving that he considered them his crown and joy. Remember, as he concluded chapter 3 with verses 20 and 21, he reminded all of us that we are citizens of heaven. And we have to understand, as a result of that, we should be pursuing Christ with all our heart and eagerly awaiting his return. <clears throat> that is when we all will receive our glorified bodies and remain with Christ for all eternity. Paul stresses in chapter 4 and verse 1, how believers can be spiritually stable. The many promises given throughout the New Testament of believers' security in Christ, as well as the eternal hope that we have, is something that should never give way to complacency or sin. We must realize that even though we are eternally secure, we should pursue Christ with all our hearts and holiness in our lives. Paul's words here, my beloved brethren whom I long to see, he had a very unique relationship with these Philippians. This was the church which he planted on his second missionary journey, and he did so rather uniquely in a dramatic way. Paul had a vision, and during the night, he, there was a man of Macedonia, he had a dream, standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to, Mas <clears throat> to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This was in Acts 16 when Paul was given that commission. So many of the initial converts in Philippi were Jewish or Jewish proselytes. However, the Gentiles made up the majority of the congregation at the Church of Philippi. They had such a deep affection for Paul, and when he was quite having difficulty in stages of his ministry, even though 
this local fellowship was poor, they still supplied Paul with all his needs. And as he was in prison in Rome when he wrote this letter, as well as the other three prison epistles, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, he received a gift which was delivered by Epaphroditus. And remember at the first part of this letter in chapter 2, he had to send Epaphroditus back. He was ill almost to the point of death. And yet the believers wanted to check on Paul. They hadn't heard from him in two years or for a long period of time. They wanted to know how he was and if he had sufficient food and clothing. So they sent an envoy to him, which was no small journey from Philippi to Rome. In the first part of verse 1, Paul calls him, my beloved brethren. This is a deep, affectionate love. The word beloved is the adjective form of the deepest and strongest Greek form for love. When Paul called him, them, his beloved, he used the deepest form of love that can be expressed. In chapter 1 of this epistle, Paul said this about the Philippians. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always, offering prayer with joy in every prayer for all of you, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. So when Paul left for Macedonia, no one else assisted him and supplied for his needs except the church of Philippi. And again, a poor body of believers of little means. So not only did Paul begin this fourth chapter expressing his love and affection for these believers, but he also repeats that, my beloved brother. And he continues with whom I long to see. This translates another adjective so that the phrase could be transferred, <clears throat> translated, my beloved and long for my brethren. So, Paul longed to see them, he longed to be with them, and so his desire was to be with them once again. Though Paul was incarcerated at the time, he never lost hope of being reunited with these brethren. In the second half of the verse, he also refers to them as his joy and crown. It's an interesting phrase. And from the very first presentation of the gospel in Paul's second missionary journey, he preached the gospel which brought fruitful results. 
these believers, those who were called and God's elect, responded. And not only responded, but desired to grow in their knowledge of Christ and continue the proclamation of the gospel. So we got to, in this point here, we need to ask a question. What is Paul's joy in crown? What does that mean when he speaks of these Philippians, believers? Anyone? Okay, his love for the church. Okay. What about when he says, my crown? Does anyone have any input in, as to what that may be? Okay, good, Pat. <clears throat> Pat answered with, this is where Paul is recognizing the response that these individuals had to the gospel, and in glory, Paul will be with them and to be able to see the fruition of their salvation in glory with Christ. The word crown <clears throat> comes from the word Stephanus, which refers to the laurel wreath, which was given to the victors at the end of the athletic events which were held in Rome as well as Corinth. It's similar to what trophies are given today for those that are participants in track and field events. The recipients of the gospel will be raised up on that day, and the fruits of Paul's ministry and labors will be evident to all when Christ returns. Paul did not run in vain, nor did he labor in vain. He speaks of that in chapter 2, verse 16, of the same epistle. So we can consider the question, what was it that made these Philippian saints Paul's joy? I think it was answered well by Pat when saying that he understood that the crown would be that of those who are in Christ that receive Christ under his ministry and will be his joy in eternity. But he has a unique relationship with this body. They have supported him throughout his ministry after his second missionary journey, and as they came to know Christ and he mentored them, he also knew them in a personal way. He knew the members of that body, so much so that when he concludes this third verse, as we'll examine, he knows that their names, or he thinks of them as their names being written in the book of life. We'll address that in a little bit. He <clears throat> continues on in this verse, <clears throat> and he says in this way, stand firm in the Lord. The stability of the Christian church and the Christian walk for all believers was a grave concern for Paul as well as the other apostles. The apostle John constantly warned of false teachers. Peter warned of false teachers. Paul 
in all his epistles, he's wanting to assure them and make sure that they continue to be steadfast in their relationship with God. The words stand firm are the main verb in this text. And they follow through to verse 9. <clears throat> the birds, the verb stand firm comes from the words stiko. And it has the meaning in the original <clears throat> of perseverance and continuing in their perseverance. So we have to understand that not just being saved, but being steadfast and standing firm in our faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was Paul's ultimate concern for them. He did similar admonition and exhortation to the Ephesian believers. In chapter 6, <clears throat> verses 14 through 16, he says this, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition <clears throat> to Paul, taking up the shield of faith was to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. This pictured that of a, it was a metaphor of the Roman soldiers' uh, battle gear. They had they wore armor, they had a shield, they had a sword. And this was a metaphor of doing spiritual battle using the Word of God and prayer. <clears throat> the Apostle always urged this perseverance. <clears throat> he goes on and work out, <clears throat> he said this in chapter 2, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So when we look at this verse, because the believer's citizenship is in heaven and not here on earth, believers have a great inheritance that awaits them, and all Christians will be glorified in Christ. And the, at the transfiguration of our bodies to our glorified bodies, we will be transformed into the image and likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 2, Paul addresses some contention that he had received word of when he was in prison. This contention was from two women, and Paul does not say exactly what it was about. But they had a struggle, and Paul begins with this. I urge Yodia and Sintichi to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, now listen how he addresses these women. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Paul is urging the mature individuals in that body, which <clears throat> we don't know, but there are some 
commentators who think that Clement may have been in a position later on in the church toward the latter end of the uh, first century church. But he addresses these women as co-workers in the struggle of the cause of the gospel. The name Yodia meant prosperous journey in our company, the in our contemporary English, excuse me, that would translate one who has arrived. That's quite a title. <laughs> that was her name, and that was the meaning of her name. <clears throat> Sentichi means pleasant acquaintance or happy or chance or good luck. These two women, <clears throat> excuse me, were prominent in the church of Philippi. They both had assisted Paul in the furtherance of the gospel throughout the city of Philippi. Note how the Apostle Paul approaches these women through his letter. First, he appeals to both of them. He didn't identify the nature of their conflict. That says a lot for those that are in the restoration process of helping somebody to be restored. They were in conflict, which means... They were in sin, and they would be rendered ineffective for the cause of Christ until they reconciled. So rather than telling the individuals in that body what the contention was about, Paul wanted them to know how important these two women were. These were not new believers. These were co-laborers with Paul in the cause of the gospel. So they were well-known, they were established in this church, and yet at this time, they were in contention with one another. Paul thought it was urgent, and he continues to bring that encouragement. <clears throat> yes, yes, Ron. Good point. Ron <clears throat> just pointed out, I haven't got to that yet, but uh, these two women, since they were in contention and well-known in the church and would have affected the entire body, would that not constitute a process of discipline? Matthew 18, Matthew 5, or Galatians 6. Galatians 6 is how Paul is approaching her, with gentleness and kindness, hoping that she might, they might turn to Christ and repent and once again be restored to the Lord and restored to the body. So this is why he is uh, calling upon these other individuals, which will go on further. But Ron's question was, should this not be addressed? And however, that's a point that we must know in the process of reconciliation Conciliation and restoration, it may go to that point. Paul is addressing them and making an appeal for them to reconcile, to repent. Jim. Not every sin between believers is immediately a Matthew 18 circumstance or situation. Right. As Jim points out, not every sin that one commits is something that you would go immediately to Matthew 18. 
It's only if there is no repentance and it escalates that that process would be carried out. And it's always done in love and always for the point of what? Restoration. That's the whole purpose of any form of discipline. Here, Paul is appealing, and he's appealing to the elders, or they may have been elders or just notable teachers within that body, these men, and he's entreating them to aid these. So he goes on, and he says, this, he gives them this imperative. <clears throat> I urge you, Yodia, and I urge Synthachi, to live in harmony. That's the essence of this entire text. We could, uh, as D. Martin Lloyd-Jones approaches this text, he said, this is the living out of the ecclesia, the body, the church, the called out. This is how the body functions. When there is somebody in sin or somebody in conflict, the body then goes into the essence of wanting to love those individuals enough to help restore them. And this is what Paul's called for. Pat? There's no record of what the point of contention was. No. I mentioned that earlier, that Paul did not disclose the exact conflict that they were having. And that was gracious, Pat, that you pointed that out. It was gracious of Paul not to point it out. There's no reason to. What is the desire? To point out somebody's fault and then try to approach it from there? No. It's to restore that individual through prayer and reaching out, correction, reproof, and instruction. From there, if the individual doesn't repent, it progresses to where others are involved. But the goal, Paul was trying to ask that they would have unity. So he goes on. <clears throat> yes, Jim. Good. I'm going to repeat that for the sake of the recording. Jim points out a very important fact, that when we restore somebody and somebody's in sin, you don't bring in a large fear of individuals. The scope of people that Paul brings into this are men trusted that he knew were mature and also exercise confidence and confidentiality. So when we have a situation like this, as Jim points out, it's important to keep the scope of people involved to as few as possible. Yes? This is a public letter to the church, but again, he did not disclose the nature of the issue. And he didn't address them. Pardon me? The, not necessarily. It, uh, remember, we had Epaphroditus, who was most likely one of the elders at that church, delivered this information to Paul. So he may have done so, and he did do so in confidence with Paul, we don't know the sphere of people because Scripture doesn't reveal that. But since Paul is naming these individuals, which we'll be looking at in this text, the sphere, the sphere of people 
knew that there was a conflict because this was a letter to the entire body in Philippi, but he did not identify it as something to take in disciplinary action through. So it's a good point, but let's look at the text and see how he's going to handle this because he doesn't expand it any further. Holding this confidentiality of not revealing what exactly transpired there, even though, as you pointed out, they may have had a wide sphere of people know the conflict. Maybe they did know some of the uh, reasons for their conflict, but it was never indicated in this letter. So, Paul, yes, Mike. Exactly. Right. As Mike points out, the approach here was not inflaming this or enlarging it, and that's the point that Jim pointed out. We do not want the sphere of the body of Christ affected by the sin, and all the body is affected by sin of one member. So if we have one member or two members, these were notable individuals, in sin, it's going to taint the entire body. So even though Paul addressed the, the conflict, and yet in a confidential way, not saying, well, this is the cause of the conflict, and he didn't rebuke, and this is important, Paul does not at this point rebuke these individuals. And there's no indication that it's going to escalate to that point within this letter. So let's continue and see how Paul addresses this. Those two women were prominent in the church of Philippi. They both assisted Paul in the furtherance of the gospel throughout the city of Philippi. And I made a note here. Note how Paul approaches these women. First, he appeals to them both, not identifying the nature of their conflict. But rather, he's showing loving concern for both of them. His desire is that they will be reconciled. These are sisters in Christ who are also servants of the Lord. And yet at this point, the conflict puts them both in sin. So we don't know the, the nature of this conflict, and Paul chose not to reveal that. He had great respect for these women, and he kept the sphere of this information just to the aspect of restoration and harmony. He wanted to maintain harmony in the body. If this body was disrupted, it would affect the entire city in the sense of what that would do to the gospel. So he knew the importance of restoring unity in that body. Paul continues with the imperative to live in harmony in the Lord. There's times when conflicts are appropriate. Uh, For instance, when the truths of God's word are at stake. That's a time when there should be standing up for God's word. And if necessary, reprove and correct and instruct. So that would be done in love in an appropriate way 
but it needs to be done. If somebody isn't in error or not teaching the truths of God's Word correctly or omitting or adding to, then that's a time for addressing that issue. And I say conflict in the sense of resolving through the proper approach of Scripture. When Peter came to Antioch, it says this, I opposed him to his face, and he stood condemned. This is a brief account in chapter 2 in Galatians, which was taught a few months, or a while back by Cornell. But in chapter 2 of Galatians, Peter had withdrawn from the Gentiles. He was eating with the Gentiles, and then when the circumcision came, Paul withdrew from the Gentiles, which was hypocritical, and gave uh, a poor, poor example to these believers. So he was fellowshipping, actually, or not fellowshipping, but he was associating with the Judaizers. And Paul rebuked him. Paul's teaching would be brought into a question. He was teaching the doctrines of grace that were saved through faith by grace alone. And he was in opposition to the Judaizers. And yet Peter was with them and acting as if he was in agreement with them. So Paul rebuked him publicly. He had to in this instance. But he did so in love because he corrected the error and solidified the truths which he was proclaiming. So the conflict between his two women in Philippi had the potential to cause great strife within the body. The apostle demonstrates care and love Because of Paul's great love for this fellowship, he knew that any source of contention would be between members would cause great harm. So the first thing Paul does at this point is to try to help these women. And by assisting them, he was wanting to bring them back into the harmony of the body that should be. So... Two members in a church in conflict. Where would we start? How would we handle this? Well-known members, mature believers, and yet a disagreement over something. Brian. Right. I want to repeat this. statement by Brian Wood, the essence of what Paul had said earlier in this letter, which I'm going to cover in this text, (laughs) so you got a little ahead of me, but the essence of being of one mind, that in itself, of one mind, they're like-minded in their thinking, and it's based on what? The Word of God, what they were being taught by the Apostle. So, the essence of harmony is being like-minded with one another. If there ari- a conflict arises, the way it's handled is with humility and looking to others as more important than ourselves. Paul instructed them early on this, in this epistle. And 
not to be gossips. See, one of the issues with Jim uh, was pointing out is keeping the sphere of people. In this case, the letter reveals that they had conflict, but it was concealed or not revealed as to what that conflict was. So even though the sphere was there, Paul is giving corrective direction. For what purpose? To bring unity within the body. So as he continues to deal with this conflict, he says, live in harmony. So as we think of individuals who are at odds with one another as believers, then we could individually go to that individual, or both individuals, but one at a time, and yet appeal to them with Scripture to try to reason with them, to point them to their sin and a recognition of what this conflict would do if it continued for their relationship with God and the effect it would have on the entire body. So because Paul addressed it in this way, now he's addressing individuals to help these women. So he goes on. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women. So Paul now is bringing somebody into this process in the body. He isn't doing this, remember again, his attitude. He's doing this not with sternness, and yet he is entreating uh, and urging them to reconcile. As Brian got a bit ahead of me here, in 127, Paul exhorts the Philippians in this way, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of the <clears throat> that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Here again is a single-mindedness. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. As Christians, we should be living examples of Christ's behavior. <clears throat> yes. Nathel. Yes. This is a great, <clears throat> great point uh, Nathel is bringing out. Is Paul is keeping the sphere down. He's not exposed the essence of the conflict. And when we put it into practice in our body, it isn't something we go to somebody and say, well, I'd like you to pray for so-and-so and then pour out this uh, litany of gossip as to the nature of it and who it affected, but rather have enough loving concern to go to them individually and minister to them and help them in this restorative process. We're running out of time here. We'll pick up where we left off here. But I want to close with this. This exhortation that Paul gives, both exhortation as well as warning or admonition, we need to heed as a body. We're never above having a conflict. We could be mature. We could be notable and practicing 
in a local church for a period of time, but to maintain our steadfastness in the Lord and to recognize that we are the body of Christ. We are to live in harmony, and yet in that, what's that do for the name and the body of Jesus Christ? It lifts him up. It exemplifies who we are as his children, and it brings glory to his name as well as the edification of other believers. We're able to edify one another and to build one another up and to encourage one another with the word of God and prayer. So this is a great uh, exhortation from Paul, one that we should all take to heart. We'll continue on next time I teach. So let's close now and prepare our hearts for worship and continue to receive the word of God as Jim brings the message. Heavenly Father, we just thank you once again for your word and your Holy Spirit that not only illuminates your word, but also is the enabler for us to be able to, by your grace, obey your word. And it is by our obedience that we show our love for you. So I pray, Father, that we'd be able to take to heart these things which your servant Paul penned, and that we might learn from the principles that are taught here. May we glorify you in this collective worship, and may you continue to work in our lives to produce the Christ-likeness that we seek. And may you be glorified in all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.